Let us pray. Father, we do offer you our humble praise, our humble thanksgiving this day. We thank you that we are free to worship you, that we are not under the threat of the law or a mob, that we can gather freely, openly, and lift up our voices and hear your precious eternal word. We pray that you remove all distractions, all sidetracks, all thoughts of other things, and let us focus on what your word has to say, that we might find a little corner deep within our hearts where that seed would take root and blossom into a strong, high tree and bear fruit that is honorable unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's great to be back after a long break. And it's great to see all your faces after two Sundays not seeing you. Um, It is a privilege and an honor to lead you as a congregation and to offer you unto God and your sacrifices and your praise. Um, We had today two readings. We will start with the gospel. And it is, of course, the first miracle recorded of the Lord Jesus Christ, the miracle at Cana. Now, everyone either focuses on the wine or perhaps on what Mary said to her son and what that means. But we risk losing sight of how important the concept of marriages are in the Bible. The concept of marriage, that is to say. In the Old Testament, we hear about how the people of Israel were like a wayward wife, a wayward spouse, who, after making a marriage promise, a covenant with God, lost sight of that, engaged in adulterous worship of false gods. And the husband, God the Father, we hear in images such as the wife Gomer and her husband, who is meant to pursue her regardless of what she goes through. We hear about the husband, God, who is faithful, who is merciful, who, although has wrath, is also merciful. And we don't only hear it in the Old Testament. We hear in the New Testament. St. Paul talk about the analogy, the mystery of how husband and wife are like Christ and the church. And then bookending the whole of our Bible, we hear in Revelations 19 of the marriage feast of the Lamb. How in the end of days, the Son will celebrate in a great feast when the bride is offered pure, holy unto Him. And so weddings are a time indeed of great celebration, of sacred covenants being made. And yes, the wine, not just that the wine is multiplied, but that wine in the Old Testament has special prophetic promises. This is what Isaiah 25 prophesies about the future, about when a new deliverer will be sent to the people of Israel 
and how wine is involved. Chapter 25, verse 6 says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So it isn't just about the miracle about turning wine, turning, excuse me, water into wine. It is about a prophecy being fulfilled. It is about a foretype, a foreshadow we, the Israelites would have well known, and we should well know if we study our Old Testament. We should pick up on these, these indicators, these flags that raise up. Ah, The first miracle after the baptism of the Lord Jesus, after the commissioning of the Lord Jesus, in which the Father says, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. First miracle is a miracle of a feast in a wedding which has run out of wine. More about what the significance of running out of wine is. But the prophecy from Isaiah is... In the future, all nations, the veil shall be stripped from all nations. That's us Gentiles. That's us Nigerians, Ukrainians, Americans, English, Chinese, Portuguese, South African. All of this congregation here present, Polish, um, etc. Romanian. The veil of all the Gentile nations will be stripped and there will be wine flowing. And all of these nations will call on God. This is the special significance that should come to mind when we read about this miracle. Now, the depleted resources of the wine has run out in the wedding. This has special significance. The period between the closure of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament is a period of about 200 years. It's called the intertestamental silence in which the Jews believed that God had stopped speaking to them. They had, of course, in that period of time been conquered by the Romans. Before that, by the remnants of Alexander the Great's generals who Hellenized all of Israel. So these people, these Jewish people, had come under pacification, pacification, and pacification. And they had entered into this context in their minds where they thought, God has left us. He's gone silent. We are exhausted. Our resources, our spiritual resources are depleted. We have become ineffectual. The jars of purification, remember the reading in the gospel is that these are clay jars used for purification rituals. 
Now, do the children remember what I've talked about? Purification rituals in the Old Testament and how in the temple of Solomon, in the first and second temple, outside the temple, even today you can go and find them, there are carved out baths. Now, what did the people of Israel do, the children? What did the people of Israel do before they entered into the temple? Yes, Lavinia. Wash their hands. What else did they wash? They cleanse their bodies. It was a fully immersed cleansing because they had come and perhaps likely touched impure things. And God is holy and cannot countenance. And anything unholy is destroyed by God. So it is dangerous to enter the space of God without being clean. And so these jars used for purification rituals, were empty. And God and Jesus says, fill them with water, which is a, a thread connecting from the Old Testament purification. And then he turns them into wine, which fulfills a new pro- a prophecy of the Old Testament, but also foreshadows communion. For a new covenant is to come, Represented by water being turned into wine. It is filled to the brim, it says in the scripture. The water, fill it to the brim. From exhaustion to fullness. But how does this reading, this exposition, this story of the wedding at Cana, its significance in in, in terms of fulfilled prophecy, its significance of what it is foretelling about the future, by the way, did you miss that it said after three days? It's full of little tidbits of significance. And the third day, what else happened in three days? Do the children remember what else took three days? Lavinia. For Jesus to rise again. For Jesus to rise again. That is spot on. So we have these little insignificant details that if we are in a rush, we miss. But what does this have to do with the passage out of Romans? the book that Martin Luther said was his absolute favorite and that the whole Bible was included in it. The book that is so important to the Protestant Reformation about how salvation works. What does chapter 12 have to do with this this, uh, gospel passage? We shall get into it. Chapter 12 is a buildup from chapters 9. The passage we read says, God has given you gifts. Use them according to the gift. Those who are teachers, teach well. Those who are, have mercy, exercise mercy, etc., etc. It's a therefore statement that is built up from significant theological explanations in chapters 9, 10, and 11. So if we turn, because we need to understand the buildup before we understand the pay, the payout, so to speak, the bottom line. If we turn to chapter 9, if you remember, St. Paul is writing to the Romans to explain to them what is the relationship between the Jews, the Gentiles, and God. How is this new situation? Because St. Paul is talking to Jews who are confused, like, 
what are these Gentiles doing here? And the Gentiles are saying, well, God has left the Jews. We're better than them now. You know, discard them. And so he's having to explain. And in explaining what role the Jews have and what the Gentiles have, we have underpinning that the theology of justification by faith to sovereign election of God. And so in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from the Christ from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Now, just as a side note, this is why you should always, you should read your Bible, you should study your Bible. For any anti-Trinitarians, this is one of the clearest messages where Christ is called God. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But the point is, He's saying, I wish they would be saved. I wish nothing more. I would accurse myself. I would put myself into hell if it would save them. Because to them belong all these treasures. To them belong such an inheritance. And this casts a bigger context onto the emptiness of the jars. On what it means that the wine has run out. Indeed, (laughs) the wine for the wedding, the substance of the Jewish faith, the patriarchs, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Genesis, the Pentateuch, all the richness of the oracles of God entrusted into the Jews. And yet it has run its course because of the way, as Paul will explain, the Jews have utilized that inheritance. But Paul, St. Paul saying, I wish I would be accursed. Chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So St. Paul is saying, to them belong the treasures, but they have misused them and they have great zeal, but they don't have knowledge because they have taken what has been given to them and turned it into a transactional relationship with God. If I do X, Y, and Z, God owes me salvation. If I make sure to do my tithes, to do acts of righteousness, then God is indebted to me. I have rights to that. I have privileges and rights that are owed to me. 
And finally, verse chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So whenever people say, has God turned his back on the people of Israel? The clear answer is no. For the 12 apostles were Jewish. The the Bible talks about a remnant remaining. And the remnant is present from the very beginning of the New Testament church. They are the patriarchs of the New Covenant church. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says? How he appeals to God against Israel. This is Elijah. Quote, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? St. Paul says, I have kept more myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. What then? He says, what then? And so we go finally in the build up to explaining what our chapter 12 passage, how it's related to our gospel passage. Verse 11 of of the chapter 11 says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? This is the Jews. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, that is the Gentiles. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And this is the thing. St. Paul is explaining. God's plan from the beginning has been to include all races of men Jew and Gentile. And his method to roll that out is to send his son to the Jews, have the Jews reject him, crucify him, have the Gentiles included into the church by grace. Because the Gentiles were going to be discarded as unholy, untouchables. But no, he exercises grace. And in that grace, he provokes jealousy in the Jews, who will, in the end, find their way back home. Verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. But fear. And so the message 
that led up to the chapter 12 where he says, if you are a teacher, teach well. If you are mercy, merciful, give your mercy. It's a therefore from this. Watch out in being proud about the gifts that you were given. Watch out about being arrogant. For God owes nothing to no one. He cut off the Jews and brought in the Gentiles by his mercy. Don't be proud. The Jews will, be, will come back in. You owe everything to God. Therefore, the gifts that you have been given, offer them back to God. The wedding at Cana finds an exhausted Judaism. A wedding feast run out of wine. And the message is Jesus has come to the rescue with a free gift. Has come to mercifully turn old wretched creatures into new creatures. The wedding at Cana in that story, as the governor of the feast said, is about most men offering the best in the beginning and saving the worst for last. But Jesus and God has saved the best for last. God, the giver of all good things, has created good wine in the garden. He created a good creation, a good human race, Adam and Eve. He called them good. It was good wine. But he saved the best wine in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, for the end. He saved it for redemption. He saved it for the exercise of mercy. So St. Paul explaining the mystery of the Gentile inclusion and the Jewish end times promise tells us, you're a guest at the wedding of Cana. You are in an exhausted position on your own. Before Jesus comes, you are like those guests. And you will end up thirsting, thirsting for something more, thirsting for wine that isn't there, thirsting for joy that doesn't come, thirsting for peace that is, is, is escaping you. But there is nothing you can do to remedy the lack of wine on your own. It's not like you can go quickly, rush off to the vineyard, gather grapes, thrash them, press them, let them ferment, then serve wine. That would take months. But Jesus brings the wine. He brings the gift from God. We have wine only because Jesus has miraculously created it. And so we hit the bottom line, the pay dirt, the connection. St. Paul says that given that there is no room for merit, no room for arrogance, given that you can't make wine on your own, he therefore says in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern that it, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here it is. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, etc., etc. Certain gifts were given to the Jews. The oracles were trusted upon them. Then another gift was given to the Gentiles, the merciful grace of engrafting onto the true branch. These are two different roles, two different functions operating in the household of God. And the only adequate, therefore, response is because we rely on these gifts and there are no merit in, our, in those gifts, we have no rights to them. We therefore ought to return what we have back to God. As guests who have benefited from the new wine, who on our own were in a state of exhaustion, no credit to our name whatsoever, we must live lives as living sacrifices. What a contrast to what the world teaches us. Beginning with that famous English philosopher John Locke, of the 18th century, of the Enlightenment, who attempted to ground the concept of rights on nature, coining the phrase natural rights, the right to life, liberty, and property. Well, when the rug is pulled from under the concept of natural rights, when God is stripped from underpinning it, it, ha it devolves, and it has devolved in our time, to a right to all things. Have you not noticed? The charter of human rights finds its basis in the rights that John Locke outlined. And it's a laundry list of rights. We have a right to health care. We have a right to a job. We have a right to food. We have a right to a home. We have a right to an education. We have a right to... Uh, Hell, uh, tr transformational surgeries to become who we want to become. Even people in jail, incarcerated, have this entitlement mentality. The irony of it all, as the list of rights and the things that are indebted to us grows, the less peace, the less joy, the less we actually receive. The more we demand the less we get. The more we give back to God, the more we receive. For God says, if you wish to keep your life, surrender it. And if you wish to lose your life, keep it. One of those wonderful, mysterious sayings of God. And this was just chapter one of the evolution of rights the next chapter was the right to destroy a whole people group, whether they are straight, whether they are white, whether they are men, whether they are Christians. To use the analogy of weddings from the Bible, we are told to be like the guests who are uninvited, show up with the wrong attire, 
and demand food and wine on our table. But brothers and sisters, we don't have a right to salvation and we better not take it for granted. We risk the tremendous wrath of God if we arrogantly take for granted the wine we have been gifted, if we demand it by right. We are to walk away from this great wedding feast and we are going to partake of a feast of some sort soon. Walk away offering the gifts that we have received, whatever they are, our time, our money, our talents. These things aren't ours to hoard and they aren't ours by right. And so let us please God. Let us honor him in humble thanksgiving as the Magi did in Epiphany. When we remember Epiphany, let us offer God the best gold, frankincense. Let us lay our best at the feet of Christ. And in so doing, we will receive peace. We will receive joy everlasting. In the name of the Father, 